Today marks the feast of the baptism of the Lord. Traditionally, the first Sunday after Epiphany, which was yesterday, always January 6th, is a time for remembering the story of Jesus' own baptism by John the Baptist. I don't want to take too long today because we have our own baptizing to do, but there are a few things about this story that I want to draw our attention to as we prepare these waters for baptism. The first thing I want to suggest today is that as much as this story is about Jesus and Jesus' baptism, I think this story is also as much about John and John's baptism. And if we can learn to see John's baptism rightly, we will begin to understand our own baptism rightly. For us, John the Baptist is thought of almost exclusively as this kind of wild, eccentric, larger-than-life figure, oftentimes caricatured, right? He's wearing animal skins, he's eating locusts and wild honey, he's living in the wilderness, he's announcing doom, judgment, repentance, and all of that is true. But Jesus says a couple other things about John that I think we should pay attention to. Jesus says that John is the greatest man born among women. Think about that. That John is the single most important, greatest human being who ever lived. In the Gospel of John, when it talks about the conception of John, which was in itself a miraculous kind of moment, it speaks of John's first encounter with Jesus which happens while John is still in his mother's womb. Do you remember what happens in this story? Mary, the mother of Jesus, runs to Elizabeth, the mother of John, and in their meeting, John, the text says, is filled with the Holy Spirit and leaps with joy, even while he is in his mother's womb. John is someone that before he is even born, he is filled with the Holy Spirit. But by the time we find him out here in the wilderness, John is a man, not at the center of things, but at the edges of his world. He's here at the River Jordan near the town of Jericho, but he is far from the centers of power. He's out there declaring God's judgment is coming and the people of God must bend their knee and repent. John is also someone relentlessly speaking truth to power. He is challenging the Pharisees, the Sadducees. He's challenging Herod himself, which is what eventually gets him arrested and eventually leads to his execution. The text says that John is one who came with power and with truth. He's compared and even thought to be the prophet Elijah. So in some ways, John is the fulfillment of all of Israel's prophets. He's miraculously conceived. He is filled with the spirit before birth. And then he carries that anointing all the way through his life. John is the one who announces and prepares the way for the light that would shine in the darkness. He is the one who would invite the people of God and all of us to behold the lamb of God. And given all of that, what makes John so special is that his life is utterly given over to the witness of another life. His his life is always consistently, without end, pointing to the life of Jesus, directing our attention to the life of Jesus. Think of it this way. 
if John is the one who bears witness to the light, what does that say about where John lives? In the darkness. And John's greatness, the thing that makes John great, the greatest of men born among women, is that no other human being experiences the darkness of evil and the darkness of the judgment of God in the way that John does. Constantly immersed in it, but always pointing to another hope, another reality, pointing us to Jesus, to the one who overcomes the darkness that threatens us. John's whole life is lived in that darkness pointing to that light. That is who John is. Traditionally, when we see imagery and icons of this moment of Jesus' baptism, we see that the water Jesus is standing in is really three waters. It's the waters of creation, the waters of of chaos. It's the waters of the flood, the story of Noah and the ark. And it's the waters of the exodus. So in these waters of baptism, we are meant to see the waters of pre-creation, We're meant to see the waters of God's judgment coming to sweep away evil. And we're meant to see the waters of Exodus that carry Pharaoh and his armies to their destruction. Those are the waters that John stands in. That is the place where John lives in the heart of God's judgment against the mystery of iniquity. And living there, John announces, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But in all of that confusion, in all of that darkness and all of that chaos, John is simply faithful to draw our attention again and again back to Jesus. Again and again, John points to the light that shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it. That is who John is constantly pointing to Jesus, constantly bringing our attention, our attentiveness, our focus back to Jesus. And now, maybe more than ever, we are in desperate need of keeping our attention on Jesus. This past week, I was scrolling through Instagram and I stumbled on a post from someone that I'm related to. And the comment section was full of this back and forth with another someone that I'm related to. And the whole exchange was about Cartesian philosophy and solipsism and narcissism and capital T truth versus lowercase t truth and blah, blah, blah. It reminded me of one of my favorite stories about Stanley Hauerwas, who is another kind of larger than life figure. And he was a a former professor at Duke, former professor at uh, Notre Dame. He's retired now. And one day he's getting into an elevator at the university with a couple other professors. And these other professors are having this like very serious, very deep conversation about philosophy and soteriology and eschatology. And right before Stanley Hauerwas steps off the elevator, he turns back to his colleagues and says, gentlemen, What the blank does that have to do with Jesus? We need that kind of redirection. 
with everything going on in the world and everything fighting for our attention, everyone telling us who and what to be afraid of with all of our stresses and our anxieties, our uncertainties and inability to talk to one another rather than past one another, what we need is a reorienting voice asking us, what in the world does that have to do with Jesus? What does that have to do with loving the people that Jesus commanded us to love? What does that have to do with caring for the people that Jesus commanded us to care for? What does that have to do with being present to the suffering of the world? with being peacemakers in a world of conflict and violence and competition. We need that kind of redirection. Our life is about Jesus. And John's life does this. His life gives us that kind of redirection, that reminder that no matter what kind of pain we experience in the world, it is always fitted to the suffering servant of Jesus. What I want us to see today is that what John shows us in showing us his baptism, this baptism of Jesus, it's nothing less than the character of God. John shows us that what Jesus does in his baptism is what God is doing. What Jesus does in this moment is what God is doing in all moments. This is the the very heart of Christian conviction that what we see happening with Jesus is a revelation. It is an epiphany of who God is and what God is like. So with that being said, let's look at this event and see what's happening. First, Jesus goes out to John. Jesus goes to the Jordan out from Nazareth and that is not a short walk. It could take as little as three days. It could take as much as a week to make that journey. But Jesus goes out there to see John so that this moment can happen. Jesus goes to see him. And this is what we need to hear, that there is no length to which God will not go to reach everything and everyone that God means to reach. Paul says it this way, that his prayer for us is that we will know the height and the depth and the length and the breadth of that love. So what we see in Jesus going out to John is that he goes to whatever length is necessary to reach those depths, the extremes, the corners, the edges, the heights to claim what God has made space for. What we see in Jesus is the one who covers the entire map There is nowhere too far. There's nowhere too extreme. There's nothing that is beyond the lengths that Jesus is willing to go for you. Not only does Jesus go out, but once he gets there, he goes to the depths. Jesus goes down into those waters of chaos and the flood, the waters of exile. He goes down with the damned, the text tells us. Think about this difference that Jesus, he doesn't go through the waters on dry land like the people of God did in the Exodus. They don't part for him like they did for them. He goes down in the water. Who is he joining in those waters? He is joining Pharaoh and his army with the wicked ones of the earth who are swept away with you and with me. He goes down into the chaos to claim even that space for God. 
This is what Jesus says, that if you love those who love you, what have you done? But if you love those who hate you, you bear the mark of the Father's love. That's exactly what Jesus embodies. He loves those who hate him. This is what Jesus does, and so this is what God is doing. Seeking us, even when we are not seeking him. Again, Paul says it this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So he goes out to the edges. He goes down into the depths and then he rises up in new creation. This is why in Mark and in Luke, we get the image that the spirit settles on Jesus like a dove. If you remember the story of Noah and the flood, you remember that the image of the dove searching the world as the flood is receding. And when that dove doesn't return, it's a sign to them that new creation has emerged on the other side of God's judgment. So when the spirit rests on Jesus at his baptism, that is the sign that the new creation is here. He has come up from the waters of judgment and the spirit rests. The spirit settles on him because God's kingdom is being realized. Finally, Jesus goes out to the edges. He goes down into the depths. He rises in new creation. And then he goes out again as the beloved. The voice of the father speaks and says, this is my son, my beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And then immediately Jesus is led out into the wilderness. What makes this moment matter for us is that everything that has happened to Jesus is happening for us too. The church fathers said again and again that Jesus wasn't baptized because he needed his sins forgiven. He was the one who was sinless. So why does Jesus go down into those waters of baptism? He goes down in those waters to sanctify them for us so that those waters can become something else for us. So that when Jesus enters that water, he's not changed. The water is changed. It's charged with the spirit so that that water can become our water of our baptism. And here's what I want to land with today, with this thought, that all of this is possible because Jesus yields to John's ministry. Remember what John says about Jesus. Not only does he say that Jesus is the one and not John. He's not just pointing to another reality. Not only does he say that he must increase and I must decrease, John also says he is not even worthy to unlace his sandals. I am not worthy. I must decrease. He must increase. And there is a wisdom to that. There is a truth to that. But I think some of us have some, some unlearning to do when it comes to this idea that I am not worthy. Those of us who need to do that work were likely raised in a tradition that taught us that we are in constant competition with God. That my will and God's will are forever at odds with one another. So in order for God to do what God wants to do, I have to not do what I want to do. 
And while it's true that at some point we have to be able to say, yes, not my will, but thine be done, what we see in Jesus' own baptism is that he submits to John. John is saying, I'm not worthy. He even protests and says, I must not baptize you. I need you to baptize me. And I think there's a way where that right desire to submit to God can easily turn back on us and instill in us this idea that we are not worthy. Notice Jesus doesn't say of John, you are not worthy. John says of John, I am not worthy. Jesus doesn't place that on him, John places that on himself. And there can be for some of us a way in which we point to Jesus because we are afraid of who we are. And what can never happen is that our testifying of Jesus, our witnessing of Jesus arises from our own fear or our own hatred of ourselves. So why does Jesus submit to John? I wonder if Jesus submits to John to show him this truth that whatever the father says about Jesus, the father says of John. That Jesus comes under the hand of John so that in order for the father to call the son beloved, he has to say it about John as well. Of course, you can't hear that rightly until you are submitted to God's will, but you are not rightly submitted to God's will until you can hear that belovedness as being about yourself. As much as it is about you, it's about every person that you meet. Beloved. At Sanctuary, we are a sacramental people. We believe that what we do with these waters of baptism are not just a symbol, not just a sign, but a a reality. That the spirit imbues these waters and doesn't just symbolize a new creation for us, but actually causes a new creation to be realized. We believe this about the water, but we also believe it to be true of the bread and the wine in the Eucharist. And we also believe it to be true about people. You are the body of Christ. You are his hands and his feet, his mouth and his ears. You are the body of Christ. St. Teresa, uh, she's dead now. Uh, She said it this way, that Christ has no body on earth but yours. Christ has no hands with which to heal but yours. Christ has no mouth with which to speak a blessing but yours. He has no eyes with which to look with compassion but yours. No ears to hear the cries of suffering but yours. You are the body of Christ. Jesus, God does not need you to decrease so that he can increase. That's not living by the spirit, that's possession. Demons possess and drive out our humanity. Remember the story of Legion? And Legion's personality is displaced by the demonic presence. But when God fills you, you are most yourself. You are the most of who you were meant to be when you are filled by God's own life. 
You do not need to become less yourself. You need to learn the self that was meant to be. He doesn't need you to decrease so that he can increase. When God fills you again, you are most yourself. You are the most of who you are meant to be. The spirit fills us. It doesn't displace us. This is why one of the fruits of the spirit is what? Self-control. Self-control, because where God is most fully present in your life, you are most fully yourself. When God's will is being fully realized in your life, you are doing what you want, what you truly want, and not what sin has made you believe you want. It's really quiet in here right now. John does not need to decrease in the way that we imagine him decreasing. He needs to increase with the increase of God. You are not in competition with God. God does not need you to be less yourself so that he can fill you. What needs to decrease in you are all of the false ideas about who you are. What needs to decrease in you are all of those false ideas about who you have to be in order to earn God's love. What needs to increase you is, in you is the understanding that you are the beloved, that what God says about Jesus, what God the Father says about Jesus as him being the beloved, he says that about you. Last thing, at the end of John's life, do you remember what happens? He doubts. He sends his disciples out to Jesus with this question. Are you the one or should we look for another? This man who Jesus said is the greatest of all born of women. This man who laid his own hands on the head of Jesus and baptized him in the river Jordan. This man who saw with his own eyes the heavens open and the spirit rest on Jesus like a dove. The man who heard with his own ears, you are my son, the beloved. He doubts. The end of his life, John dies questioning Because if we want to witness rightly to Jesus, if we want to be people who at the end of our lives don't doubt and question or live in uncertainty or darkness, we have to be people who accept that his belovedness is ours or we will begin to doubt. We will begin to doubt him if we don't believe that what he has to say about us, that when we put our faith in God, that God brings his faith to you. God believes in you. God trusts you. This is the whole story of the incarnation is that God entrusted his very life to humanity. And the moment you start to think that your belovedness has something to do with being something other than who you are, some different, better, alternative version of yourself, you too will begin to doubt. If all you know of God is some kind of power differential, you will start to suspect that God is not as good as he says he is. 
So what I want to say to you today is know that Jesus is radically devoted to you. Jesus goes from his home out to the edges of Jericho for you. Jesus goes down into the waters of chaos, the waters of the flood, the waters of the exodus for you. Jesus rises up in new creation for you so that you can participate in that new creation. Jesus receives that declaration of belovedness for you. He is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. His life is given because he is in love with you. That is what we celebrate at the baptism of the Lord. Amen. In just a moment, I'm going to ask those who are being presented for baptism to come forward. But before we do, let's take just a moment and sit in silence as we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church.